Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter, and you are listening to the Badass Women's Hour. On this week's show, I'll be talking about why working women are putting themselves through hell because employers don't understand the furlough scheme and why the Northern Irish government is completely failing women on abortion laws. Plus, this week's guest wrote the book that had me gripped over the Christmas period. Alexandra Hemsley's Somebody to Love recounts the events of her life in the 18 or so months after she became pregnant. The part of the story that's caught all the headlines is that her husband transitioned to become a woman when their child was just a few months old. But that is only the tip of the iceberg. I'll give you a little teaser. If you have ever been pregnant and you did the Harmony test, which is a private test you can buy, Alexandra's story is going to send chills through you. And we talk about women's bodies, sexual assault as a weapon of power, and why it's possible to feel both anger and forgiveness in one space. I cannot tell you how much I loved her book. I mean, you'll hear it in the interview. I really loved it. But mainly because it forced me to look at what I really mean by empathy and where I was holding judgments in my own life. If you think you are an empathetic person, this book will challenge you. Honestly, I really think it will. And it'll show you the ability to hold two viewpoints on the same issue at the same time, which I think is something we all could be better about in today's world. Anyway, Alex is wonderful. I really enjoyed interviewing her and I hope I did her story justice. And then finally today, I'm helping one listener answer the question, how do I move my mindset from being employed to working for myself? This is just a reminder that at the end of each podcast, I'm going to do a little listener problem. So if you have got something you would like some help with, you can always drop me an email, uh, harriet.minter at gmail.com and just let me know. Give me a couple of sentences on your problem or find me on social media and tell me there. And each week I will try and address one and give you some words of wisdom. Well, hopefully wisdom. Before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. I said that each month I'm going to do a monthly podcast coaching session. So if you want a free coaching session with me, uh, it will be put out as a podcast, but it's an hour long. I'll help you if you've got a decision you've got to make and you can't make it. If you have broken all your New Year's resolutions already and you want some help getting back on track, it can be absolutely anything you want to talk about. I happily talk about anything, as you know. And just so you feel really assured, I am a fully qualified coach. I didn't just decide one day to be a coach. I've actually done the training. I've been coaching people for five years. So you're in safe hands. And also just a quick reminder, uh, sorry, I'm going to be a bit boring about this, but my book, WFH, How to Build a Career You Love Outside the Office, comes out on March 4th, but you can pre-order it now and make me incredibly happy. 
pre-orders basically determine how much attention Amazon gives your book. So how much publicity it gets, how far up the kind of list of books you should buy list they should put it, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're thinking of waiting until it's published, don't. Pre-order it now. Uh, pre-order it now. And do you know what? I'm going to think of maybe a giveaway or something I can do for pre-orders. So pre-order it now, keep the email receipt. And when I come up with the idea, I'll let you know. And if you send me a receipt, show me you've pre-ordered it, then there will be something good when I've thought of what that thing is. Yeah. So there we go. Now let's get on with this week's show. So my first story from this week comes from research from the TUC, which shows that over 70% of women who requested furlough on the grounds of childcare have been refused. So basically the TUC surveyed over 50,000 women, a lot of women, over 50,000. And from that, they found some key points around women and furlough. So We've talked on this podcast, I think, before about how the fact that actually there are more women being furloughed than there are men. And that's partly because of the types of jobs that women do. So a lot of women in the hospitality industries, a lot of women in kind of face-to-face contact areas where those areas have had to be shut down for the time being. But what we haven't really discussed is the fact that actually women who need to be furloughed can. So I don't know if you know this, but the government basically brought in a kind of caveat furlough, which said, if you are finding it impossible to combine work and childcare, you can request from your employer to go on the furlough scheme. And even if they are not part of the furlough scheme generally, the government will allow them to do so for childcare requests. So what this means is that if your employer isn't actually furloughing people, but you say to them, I am looking after children and trying to do a full-time job, and the two do not mix, particularly when schools are closed, there are no childcare facilities, and I'm expected to become a full-time parent, full-time teacher, and full-time whatever else you do. So your employer can agree to that furlough request. They can get money from the government to furlough you, so they can still pay you, not necessarily, depending on how much you earn, not necessarily your full salary, but up to £2,000 a month, so they can still pay you. And they can use then the money that they are saving on not having you on the payroll to employ somebody else to do your job while you are absent. So it's a kind of like paid for maternity leave, I guess. Not, you know, not, it's a sort of similar deal to that. But what the TUC has found is that 70% of women who requested this were denied. And this just made me furious. How can people not understand that women are not saying, oh, do you know what? I fancy a bit of time off work. So I'm just going to say to my employer, hey, can you furlough me so I can have a few months knocking around at home? I don't know if it's snowing, building some snowmen with the kids, having a nice time. What I really thought, maybe I was naive, I really thought that this whole period where we all had to work from home would have taught, let's be frank here, the men in charge that actually childcare is not an easy ride. It's not all that jolly taking time off from the job that, you know, for some of us who quite enjoy to look after your kids in a pandemic when they are stressed, you are stressed, you're trying to school them from home. It's not a jolly. And yet employers are resisting it. And I guess if I'm being nice and I'm putting my other hat on, I can understand as an employer that you're thinking, well, this means I'm going to have to get somebody else in to do the same job. It's a lot of, you know, hassle for me. I still need that employee. You know, it's not like the work has diminished. The work is still there and that's a good thing and we should be celebrating that. But I think what it also shows is a complete lack of understanding around what women are going through at the moment. And I say women really specifically because I know there are some men out there who are doing a lot of the homeschooling, a lot of the childcare, but 
all the research shows that it is women who are doing around 80% of home labor at the moment. And we are amazing. Women are amazing, but we are not superwomen and we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to do 80% of the home labor and a full-time job. And so many of my friends that I talk to are doing their full-time job from 8 p.m. at night. So they're not getting any downtime. They're not getting any of that switch off, let your brain rest, let your body restore itself time that we all need. And we know that when we don't get that time, that's when we burn out. That's when we are more inclined to depression and anxiety. Uh, It's when our physical health declines. All of these things that we need to be watching really carefully right now. And instead, we are working literally every hour that there is because employers don't understand the demands of work and parenting. And that is something that I think as a society, we should all be quite ashamed of. Something else that as a society, I think we should all be ashamed of is what is happening in Northern Ireland right now when it comes to women and abortions. So the Northern Irish Human Rights Commission has reported that essentially, even though laws around abortion in Northern Ireland finally changed in 2019, So they were finally changed at the end of 2019 and it became legal for women to have abortions at the beginning of 2020 in Northern Ireland, which until that point, it wasn't. And let's be frank, if we weren't living in Northern Ireland, most of us had missed that. Even though it's now legal, nothing has actually changed on the ground. And the Northern Irish Human Rights Commission is saying that this is basically breaching female human rights. And they are lobbying and potentially taking to court the government, UK government, because they say the UK government is not doing enough to make it possible for women in Northern Ireland to access abortion rights. Then what this has created is this sort of bizarre catch-22 where ministers in Westminster are saying, well, we've put the rights in, the rights are there, it's not our fault if it's not happening, you need to talk to the health department. The health department are going, well, there's no funding from the government and we can't make it happen. And the Northern Irish government is saying, well, it's a matter for the health department, so they need to make it happen. And everyone is just passing the buck back and forth and not actually doing anything. And I can't remember who said it. I will look it up and I'll try and put it in the show notes. But there's this fantastic quote. I think it was Stella Creasy. It was fantastic quote from Stella Creasy. He said, if we can remove the hard border in the Northern Irish Sea when it comes to Brexit, why can we not do it when it comes to the rights of women to have fundamental control and power over their own bodies. I sometimes when I'm feeling a little bit frustrated with the world, I go on social media and I look up the hashtag home to vote, which you might remember a couple of years ago was the hashtag that Irish women and men used to signify that they were going home from wherever they were in the world. They were going back to Ireland to vote on repealing the eighth, which was basically to vote to allow women to access abortion healthcare in Ireland. And that hashtag is so inspiring to me. It makes me cry pretty much every time I read it. People who literally around the world went, you know what, this is a fundamental right for women. And we are getting on a plane. We are, you know, taking time off from our jobs. We are spending money. We are going home to vote because it is not acceptable that in the 21st century, women don't have access to this right. They made it happen. And that was when the rest of us sat up and went, oh, so- sorry, Nor- sorry, Northern Ireland. Oh, we missed you out. Oh, sorry, feel a bit bad for that now. Uh, don't worry, we're going to quickly, quickly pass some laws to make sure it's okay for you too. But then when we've passed the laws, we're not going to do anything about it. 
There are doctors in Northern Ireland who are offering free services because it's the only way that women can access this. That's not okay. It should be government funded and we need to do something to make that happen. And if you're wondering what you can do, the first thing you can do is write your MP. Because right now they are all distracted by COVID. And I'm not saying that's not a big distraction, it is. But whilst they are distracted by COVID, the rights and health of women in Northern Ireland are being ignored. And that is not okay. Those are my little news stories for you this week. Important ones, I think. It's really easy for us all to get distracted by the global pandemic, by what is going on in the world right now. And we forget that the impact of that is disproportionate. It doesn't affect all of us in the same way. Women are being affected more, poorer women are being affected even more. Women in different parts of the UK impacted differently by this. We all need to come together and support each other. One woman who has really understood the impact of seemingly small changes adding up to big changes on her life is Alexandra Hemsley. Her new book, Somebody to Love, was my read over Christmas. So I actually read her other book, Leap In, the Christmas before, and I was like, oh, that's lovely. It's all about learning to swim and not wild swimming, as you'll hear her tell me off in the interview. It's all about learning to swim. How exciting. Um, I'll read the next one. It'll be an equally jolly ride and hugely inspiring. It's a tough read. It's one woman going through an almost unimaginable set of circumstances. But in it, she explores women's bodies, their right to bodily autonomy, and really what it means to inhabit a woman's body. How do we define that? It's incredible. And this is her talking about it now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. And a couple of chapters in, you think, I really need to check because I thought I was reading a nonfiction book, but this story is so incredible. It must, must, must be fiction. And then you go and check and you realize you're actually reading somebody's life and they've written about it in such a moving, emotional and honest manner that you cannot put the book down. And that, for me, was my experience this Christmas, reading Alexandra Hemsley's new book, Somebody to Love. And she joins me now to talk about it. Hi, Alex. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me because I, I mean, I want to say I loved your book. I was gripped by your book. 
I <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Um, for people who have only started listening last year, you won't know that last Christmas I also read another one of Alex's books called Leap In, which is all about wild swimming and inspired me to take up wild swimming. So thank you for that. Ah! <laughs> so you've now become Although, part of my Christmas. I, I really can't bear the term wild swimming. I always imagine now when people say, oh, she wrote a book about wild swimming, I imagine thousands of people sort of clenching their fists in despair. It was really just swimming that sometimes was outside. I promise I didn't say wild swimming. <laughs> I take it back. I'll never say it again. Um, so I went into Somebody to Love thinking it was going to be honestly Alex kind of along similar lines um actually (laughs) (laughs) it's very very different it starts off with you you are married you have been trying for a baby for a while and you discover that you finally are pregnant and it looks like it's going to be a successful pregnancy and then it is a roller coaster from there on in let's start with I'm not going to tell everybody what happened in the book I'll let you do that in a minute but why did you want to write about this period of your life? Um, well, I mean, on a, on a really basic level, because I'd written two books about women in bodies and because um, I thought this was a really interesting part of that story. But also I wanted to write this book and to write it in this way because there were really three key things that happened to me in this quite short period of time. And independently, they would have been quite weird or quite intense um, things to go through. But altogether, they all um, impacted on each other. They were all sort of reflecting and reflecting off each other and Mm -hmm. making me see how I felt about each of them in different ways. And so I I thought it was interesting to sort of unpick um, all the feelings and thoughts that I had because it, it would have been quite easy to get into a giant muddle about it all and also because it did make me rethink loads of assumptions I'd had about myself about what I was capable of Mm -hmm. about my body and about how I spoke about the language I used about bodies and how what I assumed about other people's bodies so I sort of thought it was worth kind of holding it like a satisfying rock that I'd found on the beach and turning it over in my hands for a bit. (laughs) So for anyone who has not yet grabbed a copy of the book, which you absolutely should do, the three things that happen to you in short succession are, first of all, you find out you're pregnant and you do a very expensive um, sort of check everything's okay with the baby test. Do you want the private test? You yeah, it's get? actually, it's a DNA test. Um, on the NHS, if you're having a sort of standard pregnancy, you get 12-week scan and some basic um, sort of chromosome to blood blood tests really Um, and I knew that because I was over 40 when I fell pregnant that those tests would probably come back saying oh this is a high-risk pregnancy you should have an amniocentesis and that's the test when you have a giant needle into you that comes with quite a high chance of miscarriage and because I'd had a miscarriage already I really wanted to avoid that so I paid to have this DNA test which is a blood test which then tests the blood of you and the child that you're carrying which then the person that took the test very casually um, phoned me and said um, just just calling to check that you used a donor egg when you got pregnant and I said no 
I definitely didn't because as anyone who's ever had IVF knows, the bit where you get the eggs is the painful, elaborate bit with all the (laughs) needles and injections and hormones. And you, that that is not something that you accidentally swap for a donor egg. But um, she told me I shared no DNA with the, my, with the child that I was carrying, which raised in almost infinite um, questions, um, sort of ethically, scientifically, legally. It could have been a child which was with my ex and someone else, or it could have been Gosh. two other people entirely's Tylee's child. Where was our embryo? It was our last embryo that we'd made. Had it been used by someone else and was was that child born and wandering around while we'd been trying all the other embryos it was just absolutely mind-spinningly confusing about um what being a mother is and what parenthood is and what pregnancy even is on some levels I mean that was the point when I was reading your book when I read that and I, I have got just double check this is this is non-fiction rather than fiction yeah because that's almost there's no legal precedent for it in this country yeah it is it did feel like science fiction and there there is because it's because it was a very new test obviously in the past there's been you know it's kind of a stable a staple sorry of like soapy storylines is Mm -hmm. the babies being swapped or you know someone having the wrong parent and you know the different dad's baby but not telling anyone and especially obviously there's the cliche of babies being born different colors than the child's father and stuff like that um but there's no legal precedent for finding out before the birth um it has happened since in Czechoslovakia with two couples so they were they were impregnated with each other's embryos but they found out before they gave birth so they had like legal set up for the second the babies were born and they basically adopted their own babies back But that, again, it raises sort of like, well, who is the parent then? If You know, because lots of um, very traditional um, sort of right-wing fundamental people would would see that, you know, what could be greater proof of motherhood than carrying the child? But then, you know, if you're the person in the Czech Republic who's swapped embryos, it seemed like it was quite an easy and obvious decision for those two families to want to adopt what was biologically their child back. And so it does, all these things that you've just sort of thought you knew what you thought suddenly went all very wobbly and bendy (laughs) in your mind when you're confronted with the reality of the the sort of possibilities that were thrown up. I mean, and as if that wasn't enough. So you're already dealing with all of these possibilities and where do we go and what do we do? And then Mm. you're on a train. That was sorted out. It took weeks to sort out and I did have to go to Harley Street and have all manner of tests to check for absolutely everything because there was one thing the doctors thought it might be which is an amazing potential plot for a crime novel which is mosaicism which is where one person can effectively have two different sets of dna in them um which can kind of it can lead to illnesses and things like premature menopause and stuff but also presumably incredible crime plots I mean (laughs) somebody is writing that story right now I (laughs) hope they are I mean I haven't got the energy right now I've I've done all I can with this story so after this happens you then find yourself on a train coming back from London and get mm, this into was when those, I was very heavily pregnant right uh, to the end of the pregnancy get into one of those situations that I think we've all been in yeah. on a train where there is some drunk guy being an idiot and you so you go to move and he sexually assaults you yeah he grabbed me and it was weird because 
in you always sort of imagine um that those sorts of when it assaults when you're sort of growing up you kind of think oh the, the default position that I think young women absorb from yeah. society and its messages at large, certainly someone my age, I was in my early 40s by this point, is you 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 did something to deserve it. You must have been dressed too sort of provocatively or you must have looked at him a bit too long or you must have been sort of talking loudly about shagging with your friends or something like that. And in this in this instance, it, it, it suddenly, it was so extreme that it was so blindingly obvious that that's not what sexual assault is. Yeah. It was sort of, it was that sort of grab to teach me a lesson, to show me that I could still be frightened. Because I was in a kind of, I'd been, it was my, it'd been my sister's birthday and I'd gone and had lunch with her and I was really heavily pregnant. Like I had a kind of, a, a sort of joke bump by then, <laughs> which by this point had sort of olive oil down the front from where I'd been having bread at lunch. And I had like, it was like you would, if it was a film, you their props were a bit too on the nose. So I had a massive canvas bag full of sort of really fluffy <laughs> newborn baby blankets from my sister and stuff. Like they, it was sort of kind of mm. almost silly the level of not sexual signals yeah. that I was giving off in that moment. Um, and it still happened. And I found that um, really scary because it, it really taught me, like, even though I'd intellectually absorbed that information, this was at the sort of beginning of the Me Too movement starting yeah. to make headlines and stuff. I, I sort of, I'd, the, the good feminist in me that would nod earnestly understood that assault, especially sexual assault, is about power and about flexing that power and about making reminding women that they should still feel afraid i i didn't understand it on a physical visceral level of what that felt like in your body when the adrenaline starts to slosh through you and i suddenly understood it really powerfully then and i went to try and sit at the end of the train to be as close as possible to the driver and some of this guy's friends followed me in and sort of trapped me in the carriage and stuff and i found that um just it, I found it really terrifying and in itself I don't think it's that unusual for women to be grabbed on trains I think yeah. you're actually probably sadly quite lucky if yeah. you've got to 40 without that having happened what I found incredibly difficult to deal with was the court case where the guy admitted to having had a sort of slightly hilarious shopping list level of drunk drink he you know he this was what he admitted in court to having drunk was 10 gin and tonics 10 pints two bottles of white wine and in between the event and the court case the one thing that I was really sure about was at least I'll be taken seriously because I was pregnant I was I was I was sort of really obviously stone cold sober but the magistrate said that it would be really awful for that guy to have been wrongly accused. And I was very pregnant. And so I was obviously probably quite emotional. So I might have made a mistake. And it was as it would be awful for him and life-changing for him to have had a mistake made, that it should be not guilty. And it was just like the the fact that it had been life-changing for me and that you can be emotional about being grabbed, but also... um, know that it happened yeah. <laughs> um was it, it felt like sudden a, a massive moment you know in a grown-up life suddenly comes and slaps you around the face of like oh wow those systems that are in place to protect you sometimes just don't work because of the assumptions people make and it was it was um I think what, what do people say it was a learning moment yeah. <laughs> it really was <laughs> 
I mean, this is all a huge amount for anyone to be going through during a pregnancy (laughs) anyway. And then you also had another thing going on, which was that your husband was transitioning. Yeah, when I, well, not at that point. Um, when my when our son was six months old, mm. she decided. Well, she, deciding is the wrong word. She reached the point where she had to transition, mm. and that was not something I knew was going to happen. It wasn't like a a, a, a long discussed joint decision. Yeah. It wasn't a total shock because I knew that something was wrong. So, in lots of ways. And it's been really interesting. The book's been out a week or two and I've been doing press and some people get absolutely fixated on this being the absolute worst thing that could happen to a person because it might be what they are most worried about or have the least thought that they've given to it. Um, And for me, even though it was, um, you know, sent my head spinning into confusion and trepidation and grief and anxiety and all sorts of things, it did feel like the moment where I was sort of set free because I saw it in the prism of these other things that had happened. And I sort of had to have this massive reassessment of what a woman could be or do and what her purpose might be. And, and it sort of has been the making of me, I think. (laughs) I mean, one of the things that I thought was so beautiful about the book is that you really do sort of take this thing which I I think you're quite right I think a lot of people would think this was the biggest thing that could happen and yeah and I don't say that with judgment if you'd said to the 15 year old me look this is what's going to happen to your marriage I would have laughed hysterically and burst into tears and said no thank you I won't get married (laughs) (laughs) absolutely but you do look at it with such incredible I think incredible empathy both for yourself and for her and I wondered sort of I guess you said the the kind of experiences up until that point allowed you to see it differently. And I wonder what it was about those experiences that allowed you to come to it with that level of empathy. Well, I do think that the IVF played a massive part in that because um, the process of having IVF, which is completely normalised and millions of women do and has even progressed since I was doing it, and you know, with women, you know, young women now being encouraged to freeze their eggs. Like freezing your eggs isn't just freezing your eggs. You do have to get the eggs out to freeze them. Yeah. Freezing your eggs is doing the difficult part of IVF, just without the bit where you add it to some sperm <laughs> at the end. Um, and that does involve taking hormones and making appointments and being serviced by the NHS in a way that 40 years ago had, you know, far-right Christian groups banging on the door telling you that you were in bed with the devil and that you were, you know, going to burn in hell. And 10,000 columnists with their hands in the air talking about it being a slippery slope. And lots of things that are now said about the trans community. Um, And I went into IVF perceiving myself to be a normal woman a normal obviously now being a word which I have made slightly (laughs) stretchier um and you know I just felt like me doing something that was absolutely the route to living the life which I always perceived was mine and I was right for and I had the instinct for and deserved to have and I you know I knew that if IVF didn't work it didn't work but also I didn't think that I didn't think of it until I was really like staring in the jaws of legal unprecedented <laughs> territory. I didn't feel like, oh, you've meddled. 
Um, yeah. Whereas they, they are, in it's estrogen, it's the same hormone that trans women take to live the life that they feel is their life, that they are feeling like a normal woman sitting on their sofa, having a cup of tea with the NHS helping them. And, um, and the parallels just seemed so kind of extraordinarily close and and I'd really felt that in the time that I was trying to get pregnant and you know you dip one toe into the hell sites like mum's net and realize the sort of fervor that is placed on on the mother as a sort of almost holy being and the um kind of anxiety around it and I found that so stressful to have it reinforced that to not be able to have a child might not mean that you're a proper woman I knew I was a proper woman I'd always been a proper woman and I knew I always would be but I could hear society screaming at me from all angles during that period saying well you're you're not really going to be a hundred percent though are you if you're not a mum wow and yeah. it's very, very difficult to sort of overcome that um, level of societal pressure. You're, that's what we're raised to believe as as girls, especially my age. I'm sure that the you know this sassy Instagram generation, <laughs> I'm sure, is slightly more They're, evolved yeah, than I, I was. I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to do down the generations <laughs> below me, but I certainly know what my generation received as messaging. And I think and, you're right. That messaging is so similar to what the trans community yeah that it actually when you put it side by side it's like oh it's quite a yeah I mean I just I just come out of a few years of kind of muttering under my breath like I'm more than just a blooming uterus you know yeah and then it sort of felt like that was a really you know it's not the same argument but it's a very parallel argument that trans women were and, you know, and it's not dissimilar to the one that trans men who can carry babies yeah. have of being told that you're not not right or not or somehow not real. The audacity of telling a person that they're not real was very interesting to me. <laughs> How did you because I think when any relationship ends, particularly when there when there is a child and your parents and you have to work out how to be together, not in a relationship as parents of this child, how did that how did you do that how did you work through okay we've this relationship has ended in this way we need yeah. to build a new one well I mean obviously the central helpful thing was that my ex is a really is a great person is a lovely person and is yeah. and was and always has been a really committed co-parent so there was no sense of kind of um there was no end in the parenting that yeah. in a lot, a lot of ways sometimes I think divorces can mean that one one partner can sort of vanish for a while and take a lot of coaxing to come back and be engaged but that was never the case for us and I was um obviously thrilled by that I don't want to say lucky because yeah. nobody should be lucky that the person they had a baby with stayed around <laughs> that, that should be part of <laughs> the deal the yeah um but I was lucky that it was it wasn't a conflicted area, mm. and we were also what I do think we were lucky. Although again, it was so partly by design because I pushed and pushed till I'd got to the truth. Um, was that we didn't have a child that could speak or had a set of memories of one parenting yeah. setup. So our son is going to be four in a couple of months, and he has only known one set of pronouns for. Mm-hmm. Um, 
both his parents and hasn't had to kind of go, why doesn't this person live with us anymore? And has kind of um, always had me looking out from since he, well, both of us, but, you know, the book's about me, um, looking out at things like I'm very vigilant at nursery to make sure that there are books that don't just represent the you know hashtag normal family and that and and that means so much to me and it's also really helped me to take that attitude beyond just gender so I want to I want to make sure that he sees a variety of um different sort of differences in fact family types whether it's color or ability or um, you know adoption or whatever it's it's just like to be constantly aware that the world is bigger than um, you know the the toothpaste adverts of the 80s would have had me believe <laughs> and what has how how do you did I'm I, you seem to me like such you can a hard ask me question. anything don't no, worry I've, it's hard question because you seem to be like the week. most balanced person I've ever met like, just you're just like okay this is happening I'm on it I'm dealing with it <laughs> but there must have been a point where you were like I am angry I am angry right now yeah how did yeah, you manage that absolutely I was really angry but what I could see hmm. all along which I still think some people can't see for me or yeah. in life I could see a very clear distinction between what had happened and was the fault or responsibility of my ex and what was the society that we've built for ourselves having made impossible walls. Um, It felt very, very obvious to me that the anti-trans sentiment in this country would mean that you would not want to admit about yourself, let alone to anyone else, um, those parts of yourself because they could and do mean losing friends or family sometimes or status certainly and in some cases employment and in some cases safety on the street um and just basic rights as well um let's face it they're all up for grabs at the moment um and so I think I I never felt like I never felt that it was all about me. It seemed really clear to me that this was not a vindictive act. It was was the person I was closest to in the world who I absolutely loved and adored in genuine anguish. It wasn't malice and it wasn't mendacity and it wasn't some sort of high plan. It was that life is really messy and can be really cruel. And, you know, for as many days that I thought, why me? There were just as many when I thought, well, why not me? Yeah. I got, I you know I'm white, cis, straight. I'm a, I had an, a nice education. I have so much to be lucky about. I had a great family who could support me. I had a really good friendship network. I mean, I could, I, I was like, I could take it. It, it was, it was awful. I don't want to pretend that yeah. it was just, I, this happened to me and I just suddenly thought, Wow, this is interesting. <laughs> There's a there were in weeks. <laughs> there were many weeks with tears and rage, uh, indeed months. <laughs> Some might even contest that it was years. But 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 I think what what the tabloids or um you know a lot of a lot of the internet would have you believe is that these issues are 
completely one-dimensional that you can both not tell the truth to your wife and not be telling the truth to yourself or that you can find a situation that you've got yourself caught up in objectively interesting and the worst period of your life like we are capable of many emotions and thoughts at the same time but um we are not very good at putting them into tweets. <laughs> and so I think a lot about all of these areas, all three of them get flattened and sort of pounded down and rendered sort of thin and flimsy by quick quick and angry discussion on the internet when they're much more um, complicated, I suppose. Yeah. Alex, it's so lovely to talk to you. If I can ask you just quickly uh just in the minute before the news what has all of this taught you about being a woman um it has taught me I think it's taught me that being a woman is not one person's thing to define Mm. I wouldn't want to define it my what being a woman is because I wouldn't want to impose my definition on anyone else because the experience of being a woman is so completely multifaceted and different for all of us. I think it, so the the short answer is it's taught me that I know nothing about being a woman. (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be the case for all of us. Alex, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. It's the most beautiful story. And I don't know if uh, your book didn't teach you anything about being a woman, but it certainly taught me a lot about empathy, understanding and taking time Aww. to find that nuance. So thank you so much for writing it. I really loved it. Uh, the fabulous Alexandra Hemsley there, her book, Somebody to Love, is out now. And honestly, if that sort of highlight of her story hasn't made you want to go and buy it, I don't know what will, because it is it's a genuinely beautiful, beautiful book. It's really thought-provoking in the best possible way because the experiences that happened to her she writes about them with such care and um an incredible analytical ability the ability to pull them apart and really see what's beneath them and it challenges your presumptions about how you should feel about things so I asked her there was she ever angry because my interest my instinctive assumption would be yes and I still am and I'm gonna hold that rage for a good two decades And yet what you can see there, as she said, is the ability to be angry and also to be in a place of knowing that anger isn't the be all and end all and to feel rage and to feel empathy and care. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story, beautifully written. Somebody to love out now. Do go and buy it. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. That was Alexandra Hemsley and her new book, Somebody to Love, is out now. As you can see, I'm a bit of a fan, so I'm definitely recommending it. Finally this week, it's time to turn my attention to your problems. And this week's comes from a listener who's just moved from working full-time to working freelance. She says, As I was getting ready to leave my job last year, I was researching and planning logistical parts of being self-employed, but I didn't think through how different it would be emotionally, how it would require me to think and act differently in work. I suspect a lot of people are on a similar journey right now as more and more people end up going self-employed in response to what's going on in the economy. There's also a challenge to making a move to self-employment later in life, I'm in my 40s, because you've got 20 years plus of habits of working like an employee. How do I adopt a self-employed mindset? So I went self-employed five years ago and um, 
some of you might have heard me say this before. My biggest fear when I went self-employed was that I would basically sit on my sofa, watch Netflix and not do any work. And I told a fellow freelancer that this is my biggest fear. And she said to me, it's fabulous Lottie O'Connor. She said to me, you will do that. You will do that for about two weeks. And then you'll wake up and realize that you're not going to have any money if you continue to do that. And that was really good advice. And it was great advice for two reasons. One, because it gave me permission to do that. So I did sit on my sofa for two weeks and watch a load of Netflix. You know, I did. But I didn't feel any guilt about it. And I could relax into it and do it as mindfully as you can ever watch Netflix. But do it mindfully knowing that I was going to go and do some work eventually afterwards. And the second thing it taught me was that when you are self-employed, there is nothing like the fear of a bill to get you motivated. So the first thing I would say when it comes to switching your mindset from employed to self-employed is understanding that at the end of the month, there isn't going to be a paycheck unless you work for it. So you need to know what you need to have in your bank account every single month to meet your bills and to have a nice life. I work this out differently. So I work it out as how much do I need to have in my bank account or to have a truly fabulous life because I find that more motivating. Some people prefer what's the bare minimum I need to be okay. Whatever works for you. But know that and have that as your starting point. And then when we're looking at the difference between self-employed and employed mindsets, I actually don't think that your mindset changes, but I think what's around you changes and that can feel quite scary. How we work, whether you're employed or self-employed, is different. Some of us are people who are very good at motivating themselves, at turning up and doing work without anyone asking us to do it several times. And some of us, like me, tend to be more last minute. We tend to prefer to, say, have somebody nag us for a bit of work before it gets done. And I've just had to learn that that's, that's how I work. So one of the things you need to do for your, when you're changing your mindset around how you work is to really consider what you need to be motivated. So if you look at this, are you somebody who feels motivated by, say, other people? So do you feel motivated by people waiting on you for work or by knowing that you're contributing to a bigger idea or by feeling like if you don't get something done, someone's going to you know, be angry with you? What's the stuff that motivates you to actually sit down in the morning and do the work? For me, I'm not motivated particularly by other people, but I am quite motivated by myself. So some people, when we are internally motivated, we might be motivated by success or achievement or wanting to beat something we've done before or wanting to push ourselves harder. I'm actually motivated by kind of living true to my identity. And what I mean by that is I sit down and I think about who am I as a person? Well, as a person, I want to be someone who is achieving. I want to be somebody who works hard. I want to be somebody who does a good job. And I want to be somebody who other people want to work with. Now, all of those traits are somewhat at odds with also a part of me, which is somebody who quite enjoys procrastinating, somebody who likes to take things at her own pace somebody who is not her best at nine o'clock in the morning. But what I do is I say, which are the parts of my identity that I want to honor today? And the parts I want to honor today are being somebody who's reliable, being somebody who shows up and does the work, being somebody who does a really great job and other people want to work with. And if I want to honor those parts of my identity, what do I need to do? Well, actually, I need to sit at my desk and answer some emails. 
I need to make sure I book that meeting in. I need to make sure this piece of work gets finished. All of those things then correspond to my identity and who I am as a person. And when that happens, we end up in this really nice place where we are being motivated by the things that we intrinsically know about ourselves. So to recap, there is external and internal motivation. External motivation is how is this going to impact other people? So if I don't do this, what will other people think? What will they do? Who will I hold up? What will I not be contributing to a project? And internal motivation is who do I believe myself to be? And how can I honor that belief by the work I'm doing here? And the final part that I'm going to talk about when it comes to self-employed mindset is really um, thinking about how do I give myself the confidence to go out and sell myself? Because when you are self-employed, you can feel like you are bragging a lot of the time. You can feel like you're saying, oh, I do this and it's so great and it's so much better than everybody else in the market doing it. You should definitely do my version. And I think that comes unnaturally to most of us, particularly if you're female, particularly if you're British. Um, You know, we feel uncomfortable with that. But the reality is you got to get comfortable because that's why people are going to buy from you. People don't buy from people who say, oh, well, I'm, I'm quite good at it. Um, I, I, you know, there are other people out there who are also really good uh, and I, I should be able to do this. I'm not sure, but I should be able to do this for you. You wouldn't buy from that person, would you? You'd buy from the person that says, yes, absolutely. I can do this. Don't worry. It's going to be great. We've got this. I can't wait to start working on it. You know, think about what you need to buy from someone. And remember that that's what everybody needs. And so by showing up with confidence and belief in yourself, you are not bragging. You are not conning somebody into buying something that isn't true. You're just reassuring them. You are just reassuring somebody that you have the skills that you do indeed have. And if that feels really hard for you, think about who is relying on you to do that. So by doing that and getting the work in, are you contributing to your household? Do you have a partner or children or a dog or a cat who is relying on you? Is your landlord relying on you to pay the rent? The gas board is definitely relying on you to pay for your heating. All of those things, they need you to turn up as somebody who believes in themselves and with confidence. And when you do that, not only do you support yourself, you support the entire economy behind you. And here's the really great trick. The more you do that, the more you show up as somebody with confidence, who believes in themselves, who knows they deliver a good product and who honors that belief, the more you will deliver a good product. The more people will believe in you and the more confidence you will have in yourself because confidence really and truly is a mind trick. The more we believe in ourselves and the more we tell ourselves we believe in ourselves, the more our brain believes it. Try it. Try it just for a day. For a day, every time you hear yourself say, oh, I could, or I might be, or perhaps, or I'm not very, or change it. I am, I can, I will. Simply change what your brain is saying to you and see how that changes how your brain feels about you. It's an old trick, but it is a good one. That's all for today's podcast. I would love to hear your views as always. If you enjoyed today's show, please do rate, review and subscribe. It makes all the difference. It allows other people to find us on podcast platforms and it just makes me happy. It's just nice to read people saying nice things about the work you do, you know, because sometimes you sit here in your podcast studio slash 
bedroom and feel like you're putting words out into the ether but that's not hopefully not true hopefully some of you are listening so do come and tell me what you think if you want to take part in the show if you have a question you'd like me to answer in our listeners problems or if you'd like to become a coaching client you can drop me an email harriet.minter at gmail.com or you can find me on all the social media platforms at harriet minter this has been me presenting the badass women's hour i hope you've enjoyed it we'll be back again same time same place next week you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please it helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.